2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Tell Mr. Trump, you want to meet him? I love you, Trump.
0: <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the word. It's microaggressions.
1: He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not Blacks. No one but his own kind. the rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a. I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme.
2: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who may have paid $60,000 for his hair. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So if you've been listening to this show, you know that we like to satirize Donald Trump, the ridiculous things he does, the ridiculous things he says. But it's hard to outdo Trump. He always manages to say something that's more ridiculous than we manage to imagine. We're talking about a guy who talked about his junk in a presidential debate. How do you top that? To talk more about the problem of satirizing the unsatirizable, I'm joined by Peter Sagal, the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But first, let's do the tweets.
1: Amazingly, with all of the money I have raised for the vets, I have got nothing but bad publicity from the dishonest and disgusting press. After raising, with no obligation, almost $6 million for vets, I couldn't believe protesters formed at Trump Tower, just out, sent by Crooked Hillary. I just released my financial disclosure forms, the largest numbers in the history of the FEC, even the dishonest media thinks great. Crooked Hillary Clinton over-regulates, over-taxes, and doesn't care about jobs. Most importantly, she suffers from plain old bad judgment. The protesters in New Mexico were thugs who were flying the Mexican flag. The rally inside was big and beautiful, but outside, criminals. Criminals.
2: My guest today is Peter Sagal, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, That's the show that makes my whole family want to get in the car and drive around on Saturday. But I have to say it's a little bittersweet for me because it always feels like a great party where all my friends are and I'm not invited.
0: You're invited. We just don't (laughs) want you to come. Yeah, see what I mean?
2: Yeah, it's like, it you know, it's like,
0: we'll send him an invite to the wedding. He won't come.
2: <laughs> so, Peter, you are the very best kind of guest, a volunteer. I am. Tell me why you wanted to come on Trumpcast to talk to me.
0: Because there are some things that I just cannot say in my regular gig <laughs> hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And, and I want to say them, basically. And the things that I can't say And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me are the sad and woeful things that I don't think our, our Saturday morning audience of, of families driving to soccer practice would like to hear. And I've been, I've been listening to Trumpcast because, like you, I am very concerned about the present emergency. And uh, because of my gig, I have been thinking a lot about what it means, the ascendancy of Trump, to people in my business, i.e., people who make fun of the news for a living. And it's problematic. And I wanted to share my thoughts, Jake.
2: So you would think someone who makes a burlesque out of politics, I mean, who makes it ridiculous, who's an entertainer himself, would be great for people in your business. You'd but
0: that's... think that, wouldn't you? In fact, <laughs> well, wh- uh, so
2: why is that not the case?
0: Because uh, I, I, there are a number of explanations, some of which I think are obvious and have been widely shared, some of which are less obvious. The obvious one is that uh, satire, what I do, depends on exaggeration, right? You take something, some quirk, some foible in some human being in the public eye, and you exaggerate it to show how silly it is. Classic example is Jonathan Swift in his essay "A Modest Proposal," English major, saying, "Hey, <laughs> you know, clearly, why don't we just eat the Irish babies? That would be, uh, uh, you know, the next step in our in our disinterest of you know, Irish poor." Well, what does Jonathan Swift do if they actually start eating babies? <laughs> and that's kind of the situation that the people with my job have. What can we make up about Donald Trump that is crazier, funnier, more extreme than the stuff he does almost literally every day?
2: Right. The restaurant at Trump Tower makes the best taco bowl. Yeah. I love Hispanics. I mean, Paula Poundstone would never have picked that no, as the real tweet. No, you can't right? make
0: this up. And, and, and people have made this joke. There was, a, I think, a piece in The New Yorker that if you can't pitch this stuff – like if Aaron Sorkin said, you know, let me do a, a, my next TV show is going to be a political drama with the rise of this lunatic, blowhard, egotist maniac who brags about the size of his dick on national TV and still wins the Republican nomination. And people would say, come on, that's ridiculous. Anything we think of, the people in my line of work think of to make fun of Trump, oh, then, you know, the next thing Trump's going to do is he's going to do that. He went ahead and did something crazier.
2: He's going to accuse his opponent of murdering Vince Foster. Yes,
0: he's going to accuse Ted Cruz's father of murdering (laughs) JFK. (laughs) I mean, the first time I noticed this, it was very subtle. He came on to a rally. This was way back when nobody was worried about him, and he was just in some rally This last summer. And he came on to some rally, and his entrance music that he picked was R.E.M.'s End of the World as We Know It. (laughs) And I saw that, and I said, that is a joke that not only would I make, I'd be proud of making. And he went ahead and did it. And so it's really hard. I'm going to say that I don't think anybody's comedy about Donald Trump is effective as simply playing Donald Trump's words himself, which is why I think that the way you start your show with with his actual words is the best way to do it. I think, uh, frankly, and I have wonderful friends at Second City, and I think they're brilliant and funny. I think that's why I think they're better than the Second City sketches you've been doing, because nothing matches his own insanity. And all we can really do, I mean, I've made this joke, is that all I should do in my show is just read a transcript of what he said and then sigh.
2: <laughs> I mean, just as a thought exercise, Peter, you know, take Trump, add self-conscious irony, and he's the greatest performance artist the world has ever known. I mean, Stephen Colbert would have nothing on this guy if Trump was in on the joke. It's absolutely true,
0: and that is the other problem, which is that he's not – And this is something that I haven't seen as as widely discussed as my first point, which I've seen all over the place. We have a rule on our show. It's mostly unspoken because it doesn't have to be. You don't make fun of the mentally ill. You don't make fun of people who are victims of whatever, of whatever disease, whatever, because it's not their fault. Uh, To give you an example, there was a guy who somehow got the Democratic nomination for Senate a few years ago against uh, the widely popular incumbent. He had no chance. And this guy was, was, was crazy. He said said these very bizarre things. And we looked into it, and it turns out he really was kind of crazy. I mean, he seemed, I don't know how he got the nominations to some quirk of the ballot or manipulation, but he just was not well. And so we decided not to make fun of the guy because, yeah, he was crazy, but he was really crazy. Donald Trump is like that. You know, deep in your heart of hearts, he doesn't get the joke. He's not self-conscious. That if you said to him, and people have done this, that's crazy. The thing that you just said is not true, and it's ridiculous. He'd just stare at you with those beady little eyes and deny it or not find it funny, as opposed to normal human beings. like You can make fun of Jeb Bush, to take a recent example, for his please clap moment, which we and a lot of other people had a lot of fun with, in part because you know in his heart of hearts he knew it was silly. That there's a humanity there, a foible that you can make fun of with almost his understanding. I think this is also true of his brother, George W. Bush, who, whatever his other qualities were, he was aware that he was an imperfect human being and did and said things to indicate that. that and made, could
2: laugh at, laugh at himself, which Trump, it's one thing Trump cannot laugh exactly. at. Exactly.
0: And in a weird way, in a way that I can't quite articulate as I'm making clear, it makes it harder to make fun of him. What, what I try to do anyway on my show is that I'm not trying to score political points no matter what people might think. I'm trying to make fun of people for being human, not for being, shall we say, wrong politically. And there's not a lot of humanity there to play with and to point out and to mock. There's, there's just sort of weakness and terror and ego and whatever else is going on inside that head.
2: But that, there's a way in which that really isn't funny. No. I mean, we have someone who is mentally Unbalanced. He may not be mentally unstable in the sense that he's going to really lose control, but he's he's not mentally well. Yeah. And it's kind of not funny to make fun of someone like that, even if they're in a tremendously powerful and dangerous position.
0: Yes, and that's true. And I think that one of the things that – again, I'm going to speak for myself. Sometimes I say, well, as a representative of these – I'll just speak for myself. I like to think of our show as offering comfort to people in hard times. And people come up to me and they say, oh, you know, I was going through a hard time. It was a tough day. It was a tough week. It was a tough year. And I like listening to your show. It made things better. And I feel great. I'm like, okay, that's what I do. I I provide some comfort to people. It's very hard to comfort people about Donald Trump. It's very hard to say it's going to be okay. He's just another silly guy. They're all silly. They're all emperors with no clothes. We can relax. We can laugh at them and, and relax a little bit. I don't feel that way. I don't think it's going to be okay. And it's very hard, I think. This is also true. I think I've seen this in terms of Colbert. He's had some very sincere moments, other people in my line of work, where, where they literally look at the camera and say, this isn't good. And they're not being funny. They're being serious because it, it brings that out on all of us. This is not business as usual. And I don't think that I've figured out a way to respond to it in the context of what I do for a living.
2: And I don't think other political satirists or satirists have either, for exactly the reason you say it's a real predicament. I mean, as a satirist, you have to go for the laugh. If you stop being funny, people stop. Paying yeah, attention that's to that's my you. job. That's what uh, I do. And you could say the same for the Colbert Report or Saturday Night Live. But but at the same time, that often want to to hold up something political to ridicule to expose the wrongness and ridiculousness of it. Yeah. Uh, but given the choice, you can't become a preacher. You can't lecture people. You have to find a way to mock it.
0: Yes. And there's a there's a tendency, I think, to fall away from that. One of the problems that Trump also presents, and this is related is the question of partisanship, okay? For the reasons I've stated, I don't want to add to people's anger. I don't want to be part of the thousands of voices that you hear every day in the media shouting that the other side is wrong. I want to be a nonpartisan show. I very rarely, I don't think I've, I try never to make fun of a Republican, say, because his ideas, his political ideas, because he wants to lower the marginal tax rate, say, or or give people vouchers for private schools. I mean, those are political issues, and that's not what I do. And I also want my show to be a place, and I'm pleased when people tell me this, that anybody of their political persuasion can enjoy it, because, as I like to say, both libtards and Republic thugs <laughs> like <laughs> fart jokes. But... When it comes to Trump, he, he breaks partisan bounds. There are lots of Republicans and conservatives who say he's not a Republican and he's not a conservative. If I treat Trump differently than I treat Hillary Clinton, am I being a partisan Democrat? Well, or am I just responding to the fact that he's really different than Hillary Clinton, and not just because of his political beliefs, whatever they may be. He represents a completely different thing than what we think of as the common political division. And so, how do you deal with that without breaking my rules of sort of objectivity? And I think this goes even more seriously for the journalists.  … … who are trying to maintain balance and maintain objectivity and not be taking one side or the other. How do you call out Trump for what he is without seeming like you're taking a side in the election? It's really hard.
2: It's really hard. I think you have to be a partisan Democrat with a lowercase d, which is that you defend the idea of the democratic process because we have this election in which we have a Democrat running for president… And we have a Republican demagogue running for dictator.
0: Right. I mean, and exactly. And we,
2: you, you, the response to that is no. I'm sorry. You have to run for president, and you can only be president. And we're going to call you out every time you act like Vladimir Putin or or suggest that that's what you want to do.
0: Right. And 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 it, when I do that, when I say this guy is a lunatic and this guy is calling for you know, let's just say. Take one of many examples. This guy is talking about people who own U.S. sovereign debt and saying, hey, we'll pay you back 80 cents and a dollar. <laughs> and you say, that's, that's
2: how he's always dealt with the banks. Why exactly. should the Fed be any he different? He's the king of <laughs>
0: debt, as, as you know. And you point out to people, you say, you know, that, that's, that's not just a bad idea. That's insane. It would literally destroy the world economy if he did that, if he even said he was going to do it. Can you say that without seeming to take a side? in an election.
2: I, I think you can take the side of sanity against insanity, and that's not the same as taking the side of liberals against conservatives. Right.
0: And, yeah. and I think that we, and everybody, I think, who's talking about politics needs to, to thread that needle and, and to stand up and say, no, this is not Republican versus Democrat. This is democracy versus authoritarianism. This is, as Jake Tapper has said a couple times on his show, in increasingly frustrated tones when he's debunked whatever latest nonsense Trump has offered, Most recently, the Vince Foster stuff. He says, this isn't anti-Trump, he says, staring into the camera. This is pro-truth, and it's a weird position to be in, and it's a challenge that I never thought I would have. As a guy who does political commentary and fart jokes on the weekends. (laughs) So,
2: Peter, when you first made this point, I immediately thought of this famous Philip Roth essay from 1961. He says being an American novelist in the middle of the century is basically impossible because you can't improve on reality. I think he has a line in there. He says, you know, reality is like an embarrassment to one's own meager imagination. And in a way, it's what you're saying about satire is that, you know, he was saying, look, what this, the, the crazy America that you read about in the newspaper every day is so unreal that you're not really left so many options in terms of naturalism and telling a, an honest story about what it's like to live in the country.
0: Right. Although I'm to point out that he wrote that essay like, I think it was 1961, and he's done pretty well writing novels <laughs> since then, so I think he was, yeah. uh, he was panicking a little bit. We may not be. What Philip Roth was really writing about, I think, when I read the essay, was his own sense of impotency. Like, what can I come up with? What can I offer the world that's more interesting, more outrageous, more entertaining, really, than reality, which is related to the problem we're talking about? But there's a related problem. I I, I won't call out him by name because he should speak for himself, but a friend of mine works for a well-known political comedian, somebody whose name you'd recognize. And he said that this political comedian looked around the room, having a similar discussion to the one we're having, and said, if Trump wins, what does it mean about us? What does it mean about me? What good have I done in the world if Trump can win? And there's this sense of impotence. This idea is like, we're all trying out there. You do this in your journalism and various publications and books, and everybody who works for you at Slate has done this, and I do this, and everybody in NPR does this. We try to bring truth to the world in our own way, me through fart jokes, you through books. <laughs> And we try to say, hey, you know, let's appeal to reason. Let's, let's, let's find a higher truth. Let's try, to, let's try to get along and agree on reality and not do silly things. And if we've been doing that for however many years – I've been doing my show for 18 years – and the country elects Trump anyway, it certainly shows we didn't have much of an effect
2: did it. Or 45% of the public votes for him and he loses. You yeah. know, you're, you still, we still haven't been living in the country we thought we were living in if 45% relate more to a Trump version of reality than to a reality version.
0: Yeah. I mean it's – you know Joe Scarborough, who I don't have a lot of wonderful things to say about. I enjoy shouting at him when I'm on a treadmill. <laughs> um, he actually – he wrote an essay at the time that I thought was dumb. As time has gone on, I think it's smarter Basically, he said the reason you people, meaning you elites, you people like you and me who just are terrified and are confused by what's going on, the reason you don't understand Trump is you were watching Breaking Bad while the rest of the country was watching The Apprentice. <laughs> and he's right in a way that my experience, what I assume is shared with you, I mean, I know your mom, I feel like we were kinda related. She 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 you were her her favourite son. I know she happened to be related. I just want to say that I did get to meet your mother and she did say that she liked me more than any of her actual sons. So there the point is is that you and I do have this shared worldview and we've totally missed what all these other people were doing and thinking. I don't think they were reading Slate. I don't think they were listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I think that we were under the impression, because everybody we talked to probably read Slate or listened to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, that we were under the impression that, like, yeah, okay, we're speaking to an audience. They're responding to us. Maybe they're disagreeing. Maybe they're not, but they're on the same basic wavelength. And there's all these other people out there who just aren't in the same places we are, aren't listening to the same things, aren't reading the same things, aren't thinking the same things, and that is as well. It's disorienting. So we were living in a bit of a world of illusion,
2: but yeah. they're living in a much bigger world of illusion. And what what's going on is something that's very familiar. I mean, with people have real problems, there's real economic suffering, there's real economic stagnation, and this person is coming in and says the reason for your problems is foreigners. It's the Mexicans, it's the Chinese, it's the Muslims and I'm going to solve it because I'm going to make America white again. I mean, make America great again. Excuse me. Yeah, this exactly is exactly right. This is this is a a classic historical scenario of demagoguery. And the question is, we know how this story sometimes ends. How do we interrupt it with rationalism?
0: It, and it and it's really hard. And I have no solution. I'm going to continue doing what I do. Uh, that is. You know, trying to make fun of him and trying to make jokes about him that people will enjoy. I don't I don't have any illusion it will do any good anymore. I do think this and I'm going to make a a, a Nazi analogy and I can do that because Godwin's law has been uh, suspended (laughs) approved (laughs) until the election. Yes, Well, we'll, we'll,
2: we'll have an appropriate trigger warning.
0: Exactly. But if you read a William Shriver's book or any other, I guess, popular history of the rise of the Nazis, one of the things that comes across is that during Hitler's rise, no one took him seriously. You know, um, Weimar Germany equivalent of people like you and me did not take Hitler seriously. The international journalists from America who visited him, they reported that this guy's crazy. He's a, he's a clown. He looks funny. He talks funny. He rants. He's obviously insane. So we don't have anything to worry about, because what kind of sane democratic country, which Germany was, more or less, would ever give power to this obvious lunatic? And of course, they did, and one of the great errors of history was that the actual elites of Germany, Paul Hindenburg and those guys, said, well, this guy's a lunatic, but he has a popular following, so we'll support him to make use of his popular following, and then of course, because he's dumb and a lunatic, we'll control him. And I think of good old Paul Hindenburg and uh, the, the Zeppelin for which which was named for him whenever I see oh the latest news that Marco Rubio is saying, yeah, well, I'll support Trump because that's better than Hillary Clinton. I'm not saying that he's Hitler, all right? I'm not saying that Trump is Hitler. Uh, he's not as good-looking as Hitler. Um, but there is a parallel to irrationality taking hold in a rational country. There is a parallel to people not seeing the danger because they think it's ridiculous, and there is a parallel to people who should know better throwing in with a non-serious figure because that non-serious figure, for whatever reason, seems to have tapped into public passions. Those supposedly smarter people think that they can use. And that's the sort of thing that keeps me up at night. Well,
2: me too. Um, But Peter, I have to say for what it's worth, I think you're getting the approach exactly right, which is to treat this as abnormal, to take it seriously in some ways, to try to figure out ways to make it appear ridiculous, but recognize that we are not in a normal moment in American politics where two sides disagree, but have fundamental agreement about the nature of the system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I've been doing my show for 18 years, we've been making fun of Republicans, we had Clinton, we had George W. Bush, then we had Obama, we've been making our jokes, going about our business, doing okay, appealing to people. This is totally different. And I think just like political serious journalists have to think about what they're doing and apply in a different way, so do I and everybody else who does what I do. Peter,
2: thanks for joining me on Trumpcast.
0: Uh, My pleasure, Jake, and thanks for giving me a venue in which I can vent my darker feelings. Our show
2: today is produced by Henry Molowski. He got three right for eight points, but he was beaten by Jason DeLeon, who got five right for 11 points. Slate's executive producer, Steve Lichtai, had seven points, but our chief content officer, Andy Bowers, got none wrong. He's today's winner with 17 points. Special thanks to John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.
0: One last thing. You know, when you were at Yale and I was at Harvard, did you ever think that you and I would be making our living flogging mail-order mattress businesses? (laughs) Someday.
2: You're at the classy end. I've been doing underpants.
0: (laughs) Oh, just wait for my next podcast. I'm sure we'll have underpants.
2: And can I remind you, they are great underpants.
0: (laughs) I'm sure they are.
1: Are you you wearing them now, Mr. Weisberg?
2: Of course. I've got the psychedelic ones on as we speak. (laughs)